0: Good morning, everyone. As often as I do this and have done it over the years, I always feel a measure of, I don't know, nervousness. I know that sounds unspiritual, but it's true. And uh, it begins as soon as I wake up on Sunday mornings. It's a crazy feeling of nervousness, but in reality, it's just dependence, a feeling that um, I got to rely on the Lord. Well, My wife can see right through my brain, and she uh, could tell I was feeling that way a little bit. So she tells me, she says, just relax and let the Lord teach. So I just kind of sunk in the seat and just kind of relaxed. She says, but you do need to go up there. (laughs) So now I'm all nervous again. Okay, well, how about a joke? This is uh, an oldie but a goodie. My mom told me this joke. Um, the perfect man and the perfect woman are riding in a car, the one car headed toward an intersection, and another car headed toward the same intersection is Santa Claus. They get to the intersection, and BJ, you would appreciate this, they have a collision. So who survived, the perfect man or the perfect woman or Santa Claus? And the answer is, of course, the woman, because The other two don't exist. (laughs) My mom told me that. Of course, the perfect man doesn't exist, but also the perfect woman doesn't exist. And yet reality is society still makes us believe the lie that there is this perfect man, perfect woman, and we should be that person. The ancient Egyptians actually had the same delusion, and I have the privilege to lead tours to Egypt, and whenever we go to the Karnak Temple in Luxor, we'll walk around and we'll look at the walls and all the hieroglyphics that are carved there, and this was done because the pharaohs, one after another, would put all of their accomplishments, whether it's wars or whatever it was that they accomplished, their successes they would put on the wall, they never included their failures. In fact, if they didn't like their predecessor, they'd often obscure their face, just take them out of history altogether, but never show their weaknesses, never show their failures. And I got to thinking that um, also no one saw these images except the pharaohs. So, like, they're doing it for themselves and also to impress the gods. And you just think, what god is not going to know the truth? You know, you're trying to impress the gods, and it's like the gods only see what you scratch on the walls. They don't see your failures. So, obviously, it's a religion that's not doesn't really work out. But no one saw these except the Pharaoh and their gods. And the Karnak Temple, if you think about it, was the Facebook of the, the centuries B.C. Because social media, of course, we don't put our failures up there either. We have a curated life that we put on social media. Same is true of our Christmas cards, right? Christmas cards, you take 8 million shots to get that one accidental moment when everyone looks great. <laughs> and the reality is, I mean, it'd be fun to have Christmas cards where everyone's hair is messed up, you know, kids are running everywhere, and, and, and you want to say Merry Christmas from the real Styles house. Even the feminist Cokie Roberts has this uh, understanding. She says, today's feminism drives me nuts. It's not men who are doing this to women. It's women who are doing this to each other, trying to validate the decisions they make by denigrating the decisions of others. Washington Monthly, one woman, writes that she loves men's health magazines simply for the sake of feminist politics, because she says that they argue that men's magazines are bringing about gender equality by setting a standard of manliness that's just as unrealistic as the gorgeous models in women's magazines. So she likes that. Well, of course, on top of all that is the movement that has taken the world by storm the last few years, where the equality of men and women is completely redefined in terms of self-identification that you just identify with how if you want to be a man or a woman and whatever the the equality of that represents i was at a stoplight uh, not too long ago and this huge monster truck was in front of me so you know you got this truck in front of you and you can like see the light under the car because it's that high well i looked up you know i drive a little toyota prius so I looked up, and there's this bumper sticker that on the back of this monster truck that says, I identify as a Prius. <laughs> and I thought, that disproves it right there. The designer of that truck intended that truck to be a big truck, not a Prius. So, well, let's turn together to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, and we're going to continue in our series on this little epistle, this little letter that the Apostle Paul wrote after he was released from his first Roman imprisonment. Remember last week we talked about the background of this book, and we think about it in relation to what I've just spoken to you about. If we look to culture or even to ourselves for our identification, if we look for to culture, we're going to constantly be changing our identity. And I don't just mean maleness or femaleness, but just who we are as people, as as beings that are living on the planet in the 21st century. That's why any solution other than the intent of the Creator, just like that truck, the intent of the Creator is for us to be who we are, or at least, as He reveals in His Word, his intent is also who he is making us to be, that any solution outside of God's solution is gonna leave us unfulfilled. Who we are is defined by God who made us, and not even by ourselves, much less social media. By the Creator, not by culture. And by the way, our churches have culture too. It's not just the culture, the big bad culture out there but we have a Christian culture as well that has a certain standard. and we feel like we've got to meet up to that standard. And there's often this tug and pull of our emotions that go along with trying to, you know, to line up to the standard of our church's culture. Well, last week, as we look at the book of Titus, Paul is writing this book and as we mentioned last time around uh, titus the theme of titus if you want to think of it this way is good deeds but it's good deeds with that answers the question why why be good and the answer of course is the grace of god that god's grace is the motivator behind why we live the lives we live now, the first chapter doesn't talk about that a lot. The second chapter, as we'll look at it today, just the first nine verses, doesn't talk about that at all, really. But but starting next time, next week, and through the rest of the book, uh, Paul shifts and begins to, to talk about why to have good deeds, how to have good deeds. As we've said so many times, you could sum up most messages throughout all of Christianity today on Sunday throughout the world in two words, be good, and then we could all pray and go to lubies. But what isn't told is why. Why should I be good? And even more so, how to do it? Well, Titus gives us that answer. As we saw last time, all of chapter 1 looked at the qualifications, as it were, of a life that was character qualities of godly people. And we saw this in the leaders, and then by contrast, we saw what the false leaders are, are and what we should not be in light of comparing ourselves with them. So, in light of that, good leaders and bad leaders, chapter 1, now Paul begins chapter 2 with a contrast. Contrasting what the bad leaders are, if you were to look the last few verses of chapter 1, and now Paul shifts and he says to Titus, look at verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. So, of course, if we were to look at the verses from last time, you would see the false teachers obviously don't teach what is fitting for sound doctrine. Paul tells Titus, you be different. You be different. In fact, the word there for you in the original language is emphatic. It's as if Paul is pointing to Titus and saying you, you. It's singular. It's individual. You, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And then he goes on to list some things that represent sound doctrine, which if you just kind of glance through the verses to follow, these are character qualities we typically don't think about character qualities as doctrine but this is the context that doctrine or sound teaching is also represented in sound behavior that it isn't just doctrine that's sort of a doctrinal statement that we read on a website or we have printed out and we kind of fold it up and then we go about our business but doctrine is also lived out in our lives So, Paul's going to talk about several people. In fact, everybody is covered by what he is going to talk about. He's going to talk about older men, older women, uh, younger women, younger men. It's true of all women, all men, of all cultures, of all time, because they are rooted in the Creator God, not in culture. Paul begins in verse 2 with older men. Look at that. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Now, your translation may have a few different words, but it's the same general sense, regardless of how it's translated. The good behavior... Paul says, is rooted in good belief. And some of those good deeds are laid out here. Older men are told to be, first of all, temperate, temperate. The word there, temperate, we could think about it as, you know, being sober. It's not talking necessarily about alcohol. It's from an original word, a word in the original language that means to be restrained you could also paraphrase it as one who holds himself in, and I kind of got a laugh out of that when I thought about it. No, guys, this holding yourself in isn't referring to your stomach, though uh, that we tend to do that, don't we? At least until we get up into our fifties, and it's like, eh, who cares? I remember seeing a um, a bit on Carol Burnett years ago where Lyle Wagner was dressed up like Jack Lalanne. If you ever, you know you remember Jack Lalanne, he's this he's this unnatural older, healthy muscle man, but Jack Lane, And uh, Lyle Wagner, he's all, you know, he's all, he got his chest puffed out, his gut sucked in, and he's standing there, and Lyle Wagner, like Jack Lane, he goes, Hi, I'm Jack Lane. You know how I look good here, even in my 60s? He said, I never exhale. <laughs> and then he exhales. He goes, he just kind of crumples like this, and they had a balloon that they inflated in his stomach, and it just went out like that. (laughs) That is not what it means to hold yourself in. Though if it helps, guys, you might want to try it. Holding yourself in, men, isn't referring to your stomach. It's referring to your heart and to your actions. To be temperate is one who always has a halter on himself. That might be a great way to think about it. You always have the reins on yourself. You never let the reins go. You never take the bridle off. You're always holding the reins. You're holding yourself in. He is also to be dignified, or as the New International Version translates it, he is to be worthy of respect. Dignity. That means that you carry yourself well in every circumstance. Uh, And just practically, it means that you don't embarrass people. That you're around. You don't embarrass people with your presence. He's also to be sensible. The word is. It's from two words, actually. It's a compound word in the original language. Sensible means, first of all, uh, one of the two compound words, one means safe or well, and another refers to the heart or the mind or the thought. So you put that together, and it means sound-minded or self-controlled. It's actually a word that's used with everybody else in this list as well. But here with, just in general sense, older men are to be sensible, of sound mind. And then he ends by saying they are to be sound or healthy, is what the word means, to be healthy in three things, in faith, in love, and in perseverance. So the the soundness is the same word that's used in verse 1, incidentally to speak things which are fitting for sound doctrine. So there is a connection between doctrine and behavior, sound doctrine, and you're to be sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. And perseverance is something that's particularly helpful as we get older, because after a while, older men, it's easy for us to just feel like, you know what? We're just kind of done. Done with the spiritual life, we're done with growing in the walk, when our walk with God or done with anything, we just sort of want to sit back and coast. Paul says, Don't do that. Don't do that, but rather keep going in your faith, in your love, and in perseverance. So there's never a point where you've earned a pass on godliness. That might be a good way to say it. Now, verse three, he goes to the older women. Older women, verse 3, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. So he begins with the word likewise. In other words, just as the older men are to be godly, so the older women are to be godly. And the specifics are reverent in their behavior. In other words, you live a, a proper example of your faith that others can see, total strangers as well as your own family. And, and he gives another example, not malicious gossips. Interesting, the original word here for malicious gossips is the Greek word diabolos. What does that sound like in Spanish? Diabolos, which means devil. the devil. Ew, that's not a good connection at all. But, but the word actually means slanderer. And so we understand now how that connects with Satan, because Satan is the slanderer of Christians. And so that connection, Paul says, don't be a slanderer. Don't be a malicious gossip. That's what Satan does. Pascal wrote these words. He said, I set it down as a fact that if all men knew what each said of the other, there would be not four friends in the world. She's not to badmouth others. and she's also not to be enslaved to much wine, but, then, but the contrast to that is rather teaching what is good. The word there for good has the, the meaning of teach what is morally right. teaching what is morally right. And who is she teaching? Who is she teaching? Well, look at verse four, verse four, so that they may encourage the young women. So let's stop right there. This is what she's teaching. But notice verse 4 begins with so that. You've got verse 3, so that verse 4 can happen. Older women are to be in their, in their character this way, so that they can teach younger women. The older women have character so that when they teach younger women, it, it's legitimate. There is a consistency in it. And the word here for encourage uh, younger women is that's an, actually a very interesting translation. I'm, I think a better translation, you may even have in your margin a note that says train, so that they may train the young women. And that's the idea of it. You're teaching what is good specifically by training the young women. And the word there for uh, young women is the new women it doesn't mean women who are newly women but it means new wives young wives so let's just pull a principle here we're taking it from the ladies but it definitely applies both across the board and that is this if you want to think of a, a timeless lesson we never retire from the great commission we never retire from the great commission We know the Great Commission. Jesus told it before his ascension, told it during the multiple times after his resurrection. But we're most familiar with the commission that he gave to the disciples up in Galilee. Matthew tells us that they went up into Galilee, and Jesus told them, he said, "'All authority has been given on heaven and earth to me. "'Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations,' In two ways, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is, you bring them to faith. And then secondly, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. That's a big assignment. And that's a lifetime assignment. In fact, when Paul uses the word here for older women to encourage or train younger women, in the original language, that word for encourage is a continual action. It's not a one-and-done deal. It's not just a women's retreat and you're done. This is a lifestyle. This is a lifetime of encouraging younger women who need the encouragement, who need the training. We never retire from the Great Commission. A couple months ago, I met a couple uh, in Greece and Rome who live in Belton, Texas. And they uh, I just couldn't get this older guy To be quiet. His name was Charlie. He couldn't be quiet about his disciple making ministry. He was a coach. That was his job all throughout his uh, career. And after he retired, now he takes the coaching uh, and puts it into discipling young men. I, I mean, the guy was on fire for it. And he was really pretty inspiring to sit and talk to. But what I loved about him is he understood this mindset. We don't retire from the Great Commission that what christ gave us to do we are to do until the end of our lives we christian men and women with some years under our belt and that's most of us here we haven't lived this long for nothing god has given us wonderful experiences he has seen us through horrible seasons of life he has given us grace to get back up after abysmal failures in our lives And we've learned from all that. And we can pass that along to the younger generation that desperately needs to know how to do it, including failing. How wonderful it is to teach someone how to recover from failure. The church should be uh, doing this well. When Kathy and I were first married in our 20s, she had a godly woman take her under her wing and trained her to be exactly what Titus 2 is teaching. And whenever she said, I want to I go spend the afternoon with Marquita," uh, would you keep the girls? I say, go. Because Kathy always came back encouraged and with that relationship, it set a great foundation for who she was as a mother. In American Christianity, we tend to think that all God wants from us is to keep our nose clean, to go to church and to give money. But the Bible, as we've just read, said there's so much more we can offer the body of Christ than our presence and our money, but our experience and passing on into younger people so that they can be faithful to Christ as well. We are to reproduce ourselves in the lives of others. It's a lifetime assignment. As I said, the young women are literally the new, the newly married is probably what he has in mind here. And remember, both what the older are to teach by example, they are to teach by example. In other words, they're also training, not just by content, but also by lifestyle. Now, look, we've stopped at the beginning of verse 4. Let's continue verse 4 at what the younger women are to be or what the older women are to train the younger women to be. Verse 4. So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. Now, let's just stop there. Love their husbands, love their children. You would think for new wives or new mothers, this would not be a problem. I mean, you got to train them to love their husbands. Well, newlyweds, that's easy, you think. New mothers loving their children, that's easy. You think. You remember when you were newlywed? You remember when you just had kids? The word there for training does encompass the idea of encouraging because we need it. In fact, you know, this is the only place in the whole New Testament where wives are told to love their husbands. In Ephesians, Paul tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. The word that Paul uses in Ephesians is a word that means a love that is sacrificial. It is a love that gives and that that gives oneself up for the benefit of someone else. Tough work. Here in Titus, this is it's not the same word at all. It's a different word for love. This word for love does not mean a selfless love. It's a word that means fond affection. It means you gotta like him. You gotta like him. I'm joking, but really, it has the idea of a pleasantry. Have a pleasantness in your love for your husband and for your children. It's the same root word, to love the husband, love the children. It's the same word, pleasantness. You've heard the phrase, and I'll let you finish it for me. If mama ain't happy, then nobody's happy. happy. That's sort of our modern proverb, but the reality is that the woman sets the emotional atmosphere in the home. She does. And so Paul tells the wives, young wives, to have a great atmosphere, to be, have an atmosphere of likableness toward the husband and toward the children, to love them in that way. The emotional atmosphere of the home, it's either pleasant or it's pins and needles. Louis Yablonski, what a great last name. He has a book called Fathers and Sons, and in it he makes this statement. He says a couple of other really hard things to read, but this is a helpful uh, statement. He says, My overall research clearly supports that the mother is the basic filter and has enormous significance on the father-son relationship. How is the father thought of in the home? Just listen to mom. Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, once said, It's my job to love Billy. It's God's job to make him good. That's a great word. Again, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think you'd have to tell new mothers to be fond of their kids, but several hundred years ago, a guy named John Wilmot, he was the Earl of Rochester, he said this, Before I was married, I had three theories about raising children. Now I have three children and no theories. <laughs> so true. Oh, and I love this one. This son said this about his mom. One son said, My mother taught me logic. If you fall off that swing and break your neck, you can't go to the store with me. She taught me medicine. If you don't stop crossing your eyes, they're going to freeze that way. She taught me to meet a challenge. Answer me when I talk to you. Don't talk back to me. She taught me humor. When that lawnmower cuts off your feet, don't come running to me. (laughs) She taught me genetics. You're just like your father. She taught me about my heritage. Were you born in a barn? She taught me anticipation. Just wait till your father gets home. She taught me about receiving. You're going to get it when we get home. And then finally, she taught me about justice. One day, you will have kids, and they will turn out exactly like you. Well, on a more positive note... Listen to this wonderful adaptation of 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, rewritten for moms. If I live in a house of spotless beauty, with everything in its place, but I have not love, I'm a housekeeper, not a homemaker. If I have time for waxing, polishing, and decorative achievements, but I have not love, my children learn cleanliness, but not godliness. Love leaves the dust in search of a child's laugh love wipes away the tears before it wipes up the spilled milk love picks up the child before it picks up the toys love is present through the trials love reprimands reproves and is responsive love crawls with the baby walks with the toddler runs with the child then stands aside to let the youth walk into adulthood love is the key that opens salvation's message to a child's heart before i became a mother I reveled in my house of perfection. Now I revel in God's perfecting of my child. As a mother, there is much I must teach my child, but the greatest of these is love. Really good. Winston Churchill was given a a slip of paper by a London editor in which the editor had listed what he could remember from Churchill as uh, all those who had been Churchill's teachers. And Churchill read the list and said, you forgot the most important teacher, my mother. Well, that's not all young women are to be. Look at verse 5, and the list continues. Verse 5, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Some of these things are easier to read than others, aren't they? Sensible? Yes. Pure? Absolutely. Workers at home? Hmm. Our world has really defined the role of a homemaker as sort of this degrading June cleaver that offers no fulfillment. You're expected to be ignorant, barefoot and pregnant, no room to grow, no contribution to make of any real significance. And yet this is patently false and unbiblical. Our culture holds up the rich and famous and the gorgeous as significant as for a woman. All external, all temporal. But God holds up character. God holds the homemaker role in high esteem. Now, it doesn't mean you can't work outside the home. The Proverbs 31 woman, remember? Proverbs 31 woman. She considered a field and bought it by her own earnings, she said. She did that. Proverbs 31 is a model of a woman who does work outside the home, but she also attends to the needs of her house. And Paul is saying, just make sure that these things get done. The older women are to teach the younger women when they model themselves to make sure they have a positive affection for the husband and children, and that your home is cared for, and that home and family are higher priorities than lifestyle. That is a huge challenge in this day and age. By the way, the same is true of husbands in the sense of priority. But we're, we're speaking specifically, Paul mentions here, of young women. Listen as I read from Proverbs 31 about this godly woman. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting. Facebook is false. It's not there, but it it could be. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the reward she has earned and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Think about it. At funerals, we don't talk about careers. We talk about character. That is the the bottom line, and that's what is going to be remembered about us. Not that we were successful in the eyes of the world, but that we were people of character, women and men of character. And just after this priority of the husband, the children, and the home, is the little word kind. Yes, it's important to be kind in general, but this is in the context of the home, where it's hardest to be kind. Because like we said last week, who you are at home is who you are. And also, the Bible speaks in terms of responsibilities, not rights. It's so tempting to want to look at some of these things and flip them on their heads when God never intended to be so. For example when it says here that the that the women are to be subject to their own husbands. Not to all husbands, not to all men, to their own husbands. And even that, our culture today has got some way around that. But again, this is speaking of the responsibility of the wife, not the right of the husband. The husband doesn't have the right to be the head. He has the responsibility to be the head. And the subjection is what she does unto the Lord. It's unto the Lord. Such a strong statement. And all of this is for a purpose. Notice, the purpose is, into verse 5, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. That's our high calling. That's our standard that we're looking for, is to honor the word of God. Not everyone's going to like that. Not everyone's going to agree with that. But we want to honor God's Word. Not an easy assignment. Not an easy assignment. Interesting, as we look at verse 6 now, the young men. Prior to this, the older men are told to be six things. The older women are told to be four things. The younger women are told to be seven things. But in contrast, the young men, just one thing. Interesting. Just one thing, young men. Verse 6. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. That's it. If you've got the New International Version, it may say, uh, teach them to be self-controlled. That's all the young... If you can, guys can just do that, you're being successful. The, I, the idea of sensible, as we've talked about before, it's not the first time this word's been used. In fact, regarding this particular word, it was used in Chapter 1 as a qualification of an elder... And here in chapter 2, we just read it, of of older men, of older women, twice regarding young women. But here with Paul, Paul tells Titus, urge or beseech them to be sensible. In other words, the rest, it's just enough to mention it. But the young men need you to urge them. They need a little extra oomph to just focus on this one thing, self-control to be sensible in their minds. It's a strong statement made to nobody else. Live lives of self-control. And now Paul tells Titus a couple of things he wants him specifically to be, and they're general enough to where we could read verse 7 and 8 and also apply the text to our lives. He says in verse 7, In all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine. Dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Simple list, and sometimes lists can muddy the water for something to walk away with application. So rather than try to urge us to apply all of these at once, which would be too overwhelming, I would just say, for you... Um, what in this list that we've read sort of stuck out to you? There's definitely something, as I was looking at this this week, that stuck out to me uh, personally to look at. And uh, I won't tell you what it is. (laughs) But you can tell yourself maybe what you would pick out of the list. Because the challenge of thinking, well, I can't apply all this, can sometimes be an excuse to apply none of it. So, think of something. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity of doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Notice the so that there. That's the purpose. We are sound in speech, which is beyond reproach for this purpose. So that the opponent, and there are opponents in our lives, will be put to shame. Because they got nothing bad to say about us. The so that's have been here a number of times here in our text. Notice in verse 4 that older women are to have character so that their training is legitimate. And then the younger women are to do all of that. Why? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. And then verse 8, we are to be sound in speech beyond reproach so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Being sound in speech, that's an issue of maturity. Uh, This is a little of an edgy joke, but you won't mind. Morris Gibbler said this. He said, the jawbone of an ass was a killer in Samson's time. It still is. (laughs) the jawbone. In other words, be careful how you speak. It's not without reason that Scripture says, James says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. To be sound in speech is to give a healthy word. That's a nice way to think about it, that your words bring health, bring vitality and encouragement to other people. They're not only accurate, but they're beneficial. It's one thing to speak the truth. It's another thing to speak the truth in love. And so what's the purpose of being an example in all, of, in all these areas that the opponents of God's word are ashamed when they say anything bad about us? And they are. They're saying bad things about us. And unfortunately, so often they're right. That Our world looks at Christians as just finger waggers and therefore hypocrites because we are sinners too. And the reality is if we talk about the grace of God in the context of gracious words, then they'd be much more easy to be accepted. Well, here's the second principle. Here's the second principle. determined to be an example of good deeds, honoring God before a watching world. Determine to be an example of good deeds, honoring God before a watching world. The world loves to see hypocritical Christians because it gives them an excuse to keep kicking the can of Jesus down the road. I don't have to accept Christ. Look at this guy. He accepted Christ. It hasn't helped him at all. He's still a jerk. Determined to be an example of good deeds, honoring God before a watching world. I don't know if you remember back in 1994, when Mother Teresa was the speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast. Who thought of that idea? Well I don't know but President Clinton was there Vice President Gore was there their wives were there many other leading politicians heard Mother Teresa say these words and if you know about Clinton's politics on this particular issue you know how this particular issue would have been a thorny and sticky saying Mother Teresa said quote any country that accepts abortion is not teaching its people to love but to use violence to get what they want. After the speech, President Clinton said that she was beyond criticism because of the life that she's lived in service to others. You see, when we determine to be an example of good deeds, honoring God before a watching world, we can make statements like that. But when we're not loving, when the world looks at us and we're just like them, we can say things like that and all they'll say is that's your opinion that's your opinion it's one thing to be an example of good deeds when you're already an example of good deeds but as i've challenged you and as i myself have been challenged by this text let's don't just keep doing what we're doing paul says um in verse 7 in all things in other words where is there something in all of this list Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, where in this list is there a way that we can honor God before a watching world that maybe you haven't been doing or that you can do better, just as I've been personally convicted by this as well? Let's do that and let's pray. Father, it's convicting to read this text of commands because they are a high standard. But admittedly, your standard is high. You are holy, and you've given us the command to be holy because you are holy. That our Lord Jesus Christ lived an exemplary life, and we are to follow his example as he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might have the righteousness of Christ that we might be given your righteousness because he died for our sins on the cross. And so we want to live lives of good deeds, not simply and certainly not to earn your favor because we can't. You're holy. But because we already have your favor given to us by grace through Jesus Christ. And so as we go out into a watching world, as we live our lives before friends and family, help us to take what we've read today, Paul's words to Titus, and to the older people, the younger people, that we see ourselves somewhere in this chapter, and the application of it somewhere in our lives can be lived out. Thanks for the privilege of these private moments between you and us. And even though I'm the one doing the talking, Lord, ultimately, you're the one doing the talking. Your spirit is having your way with us and allowing us to come to a place of awareness, of repentance, and then ultimately to live in a godly way before a watching world. So thanks for the privilege. Thanks for this time to reset and to go forth from here and honor you. We pray in Jesus' name.